Well, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? Anybody try to imagine where uh, that young man, Oliver, is going to be in about 18, 19 years? How that's going to unfold into a story that's a life that's very defined in its own special way? I can't help but think about that because I'm kind of in that place myself where uh, you guys are on the beginning end, I'm on the ending end of this whole process. Uh, last Wednesday, I drove my son to the bus station and dropped him off. And this is the first Father's Day that I haven't had a kid within 400 miles of, of proximity. Can't decide if that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, but it's definitely a different thing. And one of the reasons why I dropped the kid off was uh, so he could go and visit his brother, who is right now in India of all places. And there's a little bit more to that story because part of the process of what you just saw today is a continuation of a, of a series of developments that leads to what they used to call a rite of passage. When a child, or in the case of Stephen, a man-child, uh, has to move in his own maturity to a place where he goes from being dependent upon other people for his own sustainability to a place where he's aware enough of what's going on around him and what is going on inside of him and what his capabilities are and what he needs to work on that he can sustain his life on his own. At least that's the hope anyway. Or it better happen because the basement door's been locked and the, the, the lock has been changed. So sink or swim. And what I like about ancient cultures is they used to have a defining moment that said, this is when you become a man. This is when you go from that place of dependency to your own sustainability and ultimately to a place where you provide for a family that will come into the, into the picture. And you have to go through something that says, I'm capable. Now, we don't have anything that's akin to that in our world. And so my, my son Christian and I talked about it several years ago, and, and I said, you know, Christian, you're going to come to a place where you need to say, yeah, that's when I became sort of my own person. You need to have kind of a defining set of experiences that tell you and, and tell others perhaps around you, but most importantly yourself, I don't need to be dependent upon other people in that sense anymore. And so one of the reasons why he went overseas and he hiked around the world and has done all of those things is for him, in his own way, to come up with his own rite of passage. And my question was, as he was doing it, is he ready? Does he have the equipping that's necessary from the time of Oliver being dedicated to the time that we're sending him off on the plane? Can he do what he needs to do? Now, with Christian, it seems to be working out okay, but with my youngest, who is 18 and a half years of age, who has all the swagger of a very sometimes arrogant, mostly confident 18-year-old who knows nothing about anything, uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that we're working with. And as I, as I just processed the experience I had with the older one, with the younger one, I think as a father, especially on Father's Day, what is, uh, what is it that I've been able to, in, to do in my influence in these two lives? Now, thankfully, I have Christian also to outsource the process to, and he came up with this plan. Stephen and I are going to go to India, and he's going to go through his own rite of passage. And I'm thinking, that sounds great, but we're talking about Stephen here, right? And he's like, no, he's, he's, 
But when he pulls it together, he's got a good head on his shoulder. He can think, he can think fast on his feet. So we kind of initiated the plan. And my thought was we would take him to the airport and he could fly to JFK from Pittsburgh and then on over to Moscow and then on over to Delhi, India. And then his brother would meet up with him and then hopefully uh, everything would go well. His brother said, no, that's not how we're doing it. Because he's got to be somewhat conditioned by the time I get it because I'm not putting up with anything. I'm like, well, that sounds pretty harsh. He said, here's how, here's how it's going to be. He mapped it all out. He said, I'm going to have you taken to Pittsburgh, put him on the mega bus. It's a $20 ticket to go to New York. And then once he gets there, he's going to stay in a hostel for uh, overnight in Manhattan. And then after that, he's going to figure out how to get to JFK on his own. Hopefully he doesn't miss his flight. And then from there, he's going to fly to Moscow. And I told him that everybody there is English-speaking and he wouldn't have any problems. What I didn't know, and I'll tell you in just a minute, was that that isn't necessarily true. Well, we did haul the kid to the bus station, and it was in light of having his goodbyes with his classmates and telling everybody, hey, going to India, it's going to be all good. But what was interesting is when he got in the car, we were driving him to the bus station that morning, he was very uncharacteristically quiet. I'm like, you feeling okay? Because you can't get sick for this trip. And he's like, yeah, I'm good, Dad. And I'm like, Oh, you're nervous, aren't you? Because you've never done this before. Yeah. I said, well, that's a good thing because you need to be a little bit of afraid right now because you're in a way over your head. I'm just going to tell you that. But I don't want to alarm you. I just want you to know you've got to respect this process. And he's quiet for a minute. I said, would you like a few pointers? Sure, Dad, anything will help. So I said, you remember that statement in Matthew 10, I think 16, where he says, Therefore, I'm sending you out amongst wolves, uh, uh, as sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, be true to serpents and innocent as doves. You need to just wrap your mind around that verse and just keep it handy. Because when you go to the city, guess what? It's full of wolves. They would like to have your money however they can get it. They will be your best friend. They will ask for help. They will find ten different ways to get into your back pocket. And the best thing to do when you go to the city... Just look straight ahead. When you go to the country, it's a little different. More, more or less, people are more hospitable and they're about caring for each other. But in the city, don't trust no one. I know that's bad grammar, but it is the point. So he makes it to the hostel where I thank you, Lord. And he decides, because, you know, he's a kid and yet he's got it all figured out. He's going to hike two miles to um, Times Square. And he hikes down there, and he has a couple of guys show up, actually three of them. Weirdos in my book, but nonetheless, they're dressed as Spider-Man, Batman, and Woody from Toy Story. And they came alongside him and said, hey, would you like to, can, can, can we take our picture with you? And Stephen, who's very gregarious and very trusting, said, sure, let's, let's go do it. So he's all about it, you know, got a selfie going on and stuff, and take a picture, and then they get down, and then they say, can you give us some money for that? And he's like, What? Yeah, that's how we make our money. We didn't just come up here and say, yeah, we like the picture. This is how we make our money. And they got into kind of a little bit of an altercation. And finally, Stephen turned loose of 10 bucks and said, just leave me alone. I said, well, how long did you spend in Times Square? He said, three minutes. And then I went back. I said, what scared you off? He said, there's naked people running around in Times Square. It's too much. And I said, well, how are you doing now? Pretty good. What'd you learn? 
Uh, people are trying to take money from me. Yeah, you heard that before? Yeah, Dad, I've heard that before. So he makes his way to JFK, gets on the plane, he flies over to Moscow, he lands in the airport, and I'm just praying, Lord, just watch over this kid, because sometimes, well, anyhow, I'm sleeping, Mom's sleeping, I wake up about 1 o'clock to go to the bathroom, and I look at my phone, and Stephen called about an hour ago from Moscow, and I'm thinking, that can't be good. I don't want to wake his mom up. So I went into the other room, called him back. I said, Steve, well, how are you doing? And he said, I'm not good, Dad. I mean, what do you mean not good? Well, I'm hungry, and I'm thirsty, and nobody here speaks English, and nothing is written in English. And I'm like, Christian? But anyway, um, he's, I'm like, okay, just relax. And you need to just calm down. He said, I'm not processing very well. I, 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 I drink a glass of wine on the plane to calm my nerves, and now my head's all foggy, and I said, okay, just relax. Okay, calm down. Get the, get out of your wallet, that credit card I gave you, and go to any place that looks like they distribute food, and get some food, and don't talk to anybody. Five minutes later, he calls me and says, well, I have a problem. Uh, I said, well, what's that? He said, they don't take Chase. And I'm like, well, what do they take? Visa, MasterCard. I said, turn the turn the card around, and what does it say on the back? Visa. I'm like saying to myself, let's just put the brakes on this whole thing. He's not ready. We're just gonna send you home and just wait a few years. But I thought, no. We prayed over him. We asked God to go with him. We asked God to help this process to wake him up to the world around him and to wake him up to what's going on inside his own being. He needs it, so we're going to stick with it. Well, he said, I see a Burger King. I'm going to go and get myself some food. Great. Mom waits a couple minutes, and then she tries to call him. Nothing. Calls again. Nothing. And I'm thinking... I hope he didn't get accosted by the Russian mafia. I mean, I'm just thinking, where did, where, this kid's got deer in the headlights all over, and I don't know anything about where he's at or what he's up to. But I can't rescue him, so I'm hoping that whatever we instilled in him in that 18 and a half years, there's something in there that's going to help him land on his feet. And as a father who's looking at his own kids, he's hoping that they're equipped enough that when the time comes for them to be sustainable, they can, they, can, they can make it work. As I'm telling you all of this, the thing I have in the back of my mind is a story we're getting ready to get into from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because it's very, it's very much parallel to what the Apostle Paul is experiencing with the church that he's struggling with. And it's this idea that I birthed this church, not me, but I, I'm responsible for this church coming into being. And I want to see it do well. And the Apostle Paul is looking at this church and he's saying it's not doing well. It's struggling. It's confused. It's dealing with its own internal conflicts and its own weaknesses. And it is really painful for the Apostle Paul to see this church go through what it's going through. The church at Corinth, by the way, you know, as we're going through this message series of 2 Corinthians, chapters 1 through 13, we're looking at it through a series of stops that we're making along the way, and if you've ever 
went on just sort of a, a joyride in your car and you decided, yeah, I'm going to see what the lay of the land looks like. And if you do, and you really want to know what's going on, you stop the car, you get out, and you look around at what's going on at ground level. For my life at ground level, that's what's, my, that's what's been going on in my world. I have a, a kid that I hope is ready, but I also know he's struggling. And I also hope that when he meets his brother, his brother and I are aligned enough that he can, he can kind of guide him along the way. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church for the third time. He's saying, my heart is breaking over the situation that I, that, I, that I hear about in this church. And in this case, it wasn't so much a kid trying to figure it out and going through a rite of passage. It was a church trying to figure it out and go through its own rite of passage. Because when God pulls us into a church, He pulls us in so that change can happen. And one of those changes is very simply being, being, being drawn into and adopted into a family known as the family of God. We become brothers and sisters. That really is a, a, the first change that God has to, has to start with in your life and mine. And maybe some of us in the room haven't even gotten that far. But if you get that far, then the changes that need to take place get a little bumpier. You go from being a person who's driven by your own will, by your own agenda, your own purposes, to a person who should, in theory, be cooperating with a whole lot of other people for a similar goal, and that is to do the will of the Father, to fulfill the Great Commission, to be a church where people can come and discover who God is. But along the way, God choosing us the way He does, well, we got issues. We got some things in our life that are not what they need to be yet. And so God has to sort of build the plane as he's flying it with the church. And with my son, I can't say, okay, I'm going to get you as prepared as you possibly can be so that nothing will happen and you'll be perfectly ready for everything. No, it's I'm just going to throw you into the deep end of the pool and hope you make it. But hopefully there's enough there that's been put in place that you're able to swim. And anybody who's sending their kid off to college, anybody who's wondering what the next step is for their child as they leave the home, is asking the question, are they ready? And God is in the business of rites of passage. Baptism is actually a rite of passage. It's a way of saying you died and now you are raised with Christ in principle. But in reality, God's got a lot of work to do with us. And the church at Corinth is one of those churches where Paul said, here's the good news, Jesus is Lord, and all that stuff that was tripping you up for so long, all that stuff that was keeping your mind cloudy, all of that stuff that was relationally just very dysfunctional, when Jesus became Lord of everything, his goal was to come into our world and try to bring order and make these things healthy and right again. And that's really part of the good news. The biggest part of the good news is, is simply this, Jesus is Lord. And one of the reasons why it's so easy for me to just say, it's not easy, but I can, to send kids overseas to do what they do and hope that they come back in one piece is 
I trust that where I can't control their circumstances, God can at least be a part of it. And so in our parting um, goodbyes, we circled for prayer and asked God to equip and enable, to protect, but also just allow their angels, the angels of the Lord, to surround them and be at them in critical moments so that in their naivete they don't get eaten by the wolves. And that's really all you can do. But I don't want to minimize it by saying that's all you can do. That is exactly what you should do. And when Paul turned this church loose, he said, I'm hoping, even though I'm not here to help equip it as much as it needs it, that there will be capable people who will come alongside and they will expand on the work that is being done and help each of the people that are there to grow into all of these wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. But it's not going to be easy. And what Paul didn't anticipate that was so painful was that there were even some leaders, and one in particular in the church that he's, he's talking about, that just said, Paul's an idiot. Why are you following him? And all of a sudden, there's some doubt and confusion that's just sort of rippling through the whole congregation. And it was so painful that by the time Paul tried to reconnect with them, they were hostile towards him. And he wrote a letter, it says, in 2 Corinthians to them, but it didn't accomplish anything. And we don't even have a copy of that letter. And so here Paul is thinking, here we had our kid, and we expect it all to go well, and this, this baby is our church, and yet it's not working like it should. But like so many of us who have kids, you have your moments, don't you, where you're like, I don't know if this kid's ever going to come correct. Only to find that because of what you've done up to this point with love, with attention, with bonding. There's more to the process that is in your favor than you realize. And even with the church, Paul is pretty frustrated in this moment. He's not even there. He's 150 miles away in Ephesus going through his own firestorm there. And he's just heartbroken that this church is not what it needs to be and that they've actually turned against him. So much so that he said, I'm not even going to visit you guys because I know you don't like me. Now how heartbreaking is that? For whatever reason, forces began to work against him in such a way that he felt like if he showed up, it was just going to create a lot of tension. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that's the bad and this good, the bad, and the ugly of this stop that we're making in our Emmy Challenger with Jesus, please. And the bad is this. When you look at any child or any church, there's just going to be challenges. And I'll give you a one-word reason why. Willfulness. Let's say we have 60 people in here. 60 wills. Each of us have our own idea about the way things ought to go down. And somehow, in the midst of all of those diverse opinions about the way things go down, God says, I'm hoping to find some unity in that mix. 
And the good news is, God has resources for everything that we need to make that happen. But then we get back to the issue at hand. Willfulness. I'm as willful as the next person, I'll be honest with you. I don't like to be out of control and I like to have my way. But I also know this, it won't work in a church if I'm just riding roughshod over everybody. It won't work in a family if I'm just in the gas pedal and I'm saying my way or the highway all the time. But it does work if we get a few things right along the way. Now the Apostle Paul was hoping that they would begin to see it more clearly. And I've actually had to have this conversation with my youngest, who's not really good at rule following. His philosophy of life, unfortunately, is kind of like his dad's, and that's the reason why I'm in church, is where's the line at so I can cross it? And then I cross it, and then I'm asking the question, what's going to happen to me? Sometimes nothing. Sometimes and I'm like, hmm, that's the line. I won't cross it anymore. And it's just the way I'm wired. It's the way Stephen's wired. It's part of the reason why habitually going to church is important for a guy like myself. And I realized that it works for five reasons. And two covenants. The five values that I have, that I maintain with vigilance are these. I value above everything else the covenant that I have with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And every Sunday when I meet him at this table with you guys, I know that this covenant is his way of sustaining a life that otherwise wouldn't be sustainable. It is his way of sustaining a life together with other people given my willfulness, wouldn't be sustainable if it wasn't for the humility of meeting on our knees before this table and before Him. That covenant that I have with our Lord Jesus Christ is also a declaration to any other powers or principalities or forces that they can't touch me without, with, without the will the Father and the Son saying, you can. So I'm completely living under the security of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to have problems or trouble or things aren't going to happen circumstantially. But my soul and my destiny will never be changed because of that connection that is covenantally sustained by the power of God. I'm secure in that. And I maintain that, and I tend to it. But the second thing that I value is my covenant with my wife. It is an agreement that her and I made with God that says, within the boundaries of this agreement, God promises that he will sustain what we've agreed together to do. And we lean on him to make it not only a good, healthy relationship between two willful people, but a family of five willful people who say God is really the ultimate arbiter of everything that we do. And my other covenant that I have with God is, it is really an agreement to take care of myself. Some guy named Leonard 
who needs to be self-aware of who he is in Christ. Needs to be aware of the blind spots whenever they get in the way of me seeing what I need to see. Who, And this is what I, 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 I like about um, going into the wilderness like Stephen and Christian and myself at times. Because when you go into the wilderness, it gives you an opportunity to see yourself. And perhaps one of the biggest conflicts that you and I have is with ourselves. There's the ideal version of who we think we are. And then there's the version that a lot of times we're content with, but sometimes, well, we even get in our own way. We sabotage things. We just don't always get it right. And God is saying, under those, under that number three, I want you to learn to be aware of who you are in Christ. And I also want you to learn to see what it is that you have going on in your life that's getting in the way of the things that I need to do through you. So I try to attend to that. The fourth thing is my work. And it's a calling, and it's the only reason why I do what I do, but I do it joyfully. And it's something that I value, and it requires time and energy and attention. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a pastor, it just means you have to try to do whatever it is that God has designed you to do. And you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be a steward of that. And then the fifth thing is simply a friend's. Taking care of those relationships that are so enriching on so many levels and so critical. And if you value those five things, you don't really need rules. What you need to do is ask under each set of circumstances, is this working for or against those values? And it's not hard to figure it out pretty quickly, whether or not you're making choices that are sabotaging those five things that you value or you are, you are taking steps into things that are building you up. And I had that conversation with Stephen one day when he was coloring outside the line, should we say. And he was kind of cavalier about it. And I just said, you need to write down five things that, that matter to you. And then everything that you do, you need to measure backwards whether or not that choice is reinforcing that or not. And that will determine whether or not you're going to have a good life or your life is just going to be dysfunctional. And I asked him the other day, Stephen, you got your five things? He said, yep. I said, I want you on your trip. Don't even tell me what they are. When you go on your trip, think about those five things and what they mean to you. And then everything you do, start thinking about how those five things are going to be impacted by your choices. That's all I ask you, son. When Jesus was setting up his church, they all had their own list of five things, but the problem was everybody kind of had their own five things that mattered. And they really, in the scheme of things, weren't the right five things. They were, what am I going to get out of this? Or, Paul's an idiot. Or... How can we make this church work under a celebrity who's not like Paul? And on and on. And these are just bad questions. And Paul is saying, I want to help you 
sort out those things that are most important to you because the only way that this thing works is that we all agree on those things. And the most important one is that Jesus is the Messiah. That makes all the difference because it's not just your will and my will or our wills working against each other as a church. The thing that Paul's aware of even more profoundly is despite our human efforts in the unseen realm, there are dark forces that hate the church. They hate you. They hate everything about the kingdom. And they're going to ensure that anything that they can do to destroy that which has been put in place, they're going to do. And I might add, they want to do that to your family and that covenant as well. And for me, that covenant is my safe place. And it is a safe place for the people I'm responsible for. However, running a church in my role as a pastor and trying to influence the way that God calls me to influence with other people who have that same responsibility, it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation that we have to have in order to stay aligned. Because I can tell you when my kids and I don't talk, we all kind of go this way. My wife and I don't talk. We kind of go this way. When the Lord and I don't talk, well, you get the picture. So Paul's looking at this church, and he says these words, and now this is where the Bible is not quite put together well, and it's not God's fault. It's our numbering system. But if you begin with verse 23 of chapter 1, and 24, and then move into, into, into chapter 2, 1 and following. This is what Paul says. I, but I call God the witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. What would you say the key word is this week? Pain? Comfort last week? pain this week, and the whole idea of comforting people is going through something yourself so that you can see what other people are going through and say, I've been down that road, I can help you out, I can come alongside, and we can, in the humiliation of our experience, we can minister to each other. You know, Travis Schaefer, I don't know if his mom and dad are in, in the room, but Travis Schaefer is going to be a medic on a helicopter that will probably fly into different regions of Afghanistan to help different medical situations and he's going to be like a first responder. And he's so stoked about it and feels so called to do it that whenever he received word that he had a hernia and it was going to delay his work a year, he's just like throwing his hands in there. Why God? Why, why are you doing this to me? I'm right on track and I can't wait to get over there to do what you called me to do. And now this? What? And I remember talking to Travis and saying, I don't know how it's going to work, Travis, but God is going to use this to equip you for something on the road ahead. 
Well, Travis got a surgery on Wednesday, and it was extremely painful, so much so that he had to get on some high-end pain medication. It was that bad, and it's just gut. I'm, it hurts. Okay. And as he's going through this, his mom shared with me, you know what? I kind of see from a first-hand point of view what I think people will be seeing whenever I go to help them out. I can say I've been there. And how comforting is it for a person that is laying on a battlefield or from an accident, from an from a IED or something like that, and he goes up to him and says, I can help and I, I know what you're going through. And at the gut level, he knows what they've gone through so that he can be a comfort. And there's something about being broken that helps our wills and our willfulness to get in tune with what it needs to get in tune with. There's something about being vulnerable in those situations that underscores we're not in control, but we know the one who is. There's something about getting beat up a little bit that causes you to clarify what it is that's important and what's not. Now, admittedly, it is hellish. And what Paul was going through was pretty hellish. So much so that it's weird listening to him talk because he expected this and he saw that. And I think even in Paul's case, who was such a wonderful, powerful, inspired human being, he had to grow a little bit through this as well. And be a little bit more self-aware as well. So that he could be that much more effective. And so when he writes this, he knows there's pain on the horizon. And he opens it up with the good. There's comfort. But then he moves into the elephant in the room and says, there's also pain. And that's part of the reason why I haven't shown up. Because I just don't want to make it worse. And it's one of those things that there's no real reason, perhaps in some cases, why it's there. It's just a thing. It's one of those things where you try to help and it just gets worse. It's like, have you ever tried to put a nail in the wall that had plaster on it in an old house? You know, you take the nail and you hit it, and all of a sudden, the nail just bounces off a slat, and then the plaster breaks open, and you're thinking, hmm, hopefully the picture will cover that. Well, at least I know where to hit the nail. So you go again, and then a big piece of it falls off that's larger than the actual picture that you're going to have, and you're like, didn't mean for that to happen, but this has created a whole set of circumstances that were much worse. And Paul, I think, was feeling like the more I get into this thing and, 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 and try to work it out for him, the worse it gets. And I think God sometimes says, you've got to give him some alone time and let him sort it out. And keep praying that it will get sorted out. So here's how I want to end this. I want to end this on a positive note because what he writes next, I think, is good for our own clarification. In, in the latter part of this chapter, he says something strange. He says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
For one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now what's he trying to say there? Let's just flip over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. This is what he's saying essentially. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over them in him. So if you just zoom out 30,000 feet, Paul says, I get what's happened at ground level. But on the cosmic level, something has happened that impacts what's happening on the ground level. And it is this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and all of our sins were nailed onto that cross as a penalty and everything that was a curse that was upon our lives that kept us captive to the evil one has all been taken away. Because the very worst thing that you could absolutely do on this planet has already happened. There's nothing worse than you can do than what happened on that day. We killed God. You can't do any more damage than that. No one has a sin that is worse than the sin of killing God. And yet God said, even though you killed my son, by the mighty hand of the Father, the son is brought back to life. And now he's established on the throne, King of kings and Lord of lords, over everything. And so everything that happens, happens under his authority now. Every church activity, everything that this church is about, should always be surrendered to the authority of Christ. Every family that really wants to be functional should always be surrendered to the authority of Christ. And when you do, it has that fragrance. Something good. Not because bad things stop happening. No, they still happen. But when they do, you have a way of responding that is completely different from what it would have been. And as a church, if you ever work through any problems, the goal is always to bring them to the one who's in charge, Jesus, and work backwards and say, Lord, how would you have us do this? And as a church, we know that there are forces larger than this room working against us, but we know who's Lord. Have you ever been to a parade and you saw all of the bands playing and it was such a powerful experience? That essentially is what a triumphal procession is. But this parade is also one that's initiated by the victorious uh, government of the one who won the war campaign. In this case, the Romans, and they would just march through the streets saying, we beat them, and how do you know we beat them? Well, at the end of the parade, there are people walking who are in, who are in chains, and they know that the incense from this parade is really just a death call for them. And so some people, when they hear the good news, they don't want to hear it. Because the good news, in some ways, is painful. It's humiliating. It tells us that even though God loves us where we are, we painfully have to transform into who we need to be. Beginning 
with our wills. And I've been humiliated more than my fair share of humiliations in the past 35 years. And God has always had one purpose, and that is to break my willfulness. So that I can say, yeah, God, you're right. Not my will, but your will be done. He's not taking away our personality. He's not taking away even our sense of initiative or agency. He's just saying that you have some alignment problems. And so when God calls you, you may resist it tooth and nail. Because he's calling you to realign your life. But he's saying, where you're at is not enough for where you need to go. You need to write a passage so you can be ready. You need to move into something great because that's what the Father does. He looks at each of us and says, I want you to grow. I want you to mature. I want you to learn and be capable to handle everything that you're confronted with. And Paul's looking at this church and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and he finally says, let's all agree on this. Jesus is Lord and there's none that can stand against him. And let's work backward from there. And at this stop, the bad is, yeah, it means surrender. But back to the good, it means there's a whole lot of good that you can't even see yet because the car ride's not over. But you'll discover along the way, as many of us have. We can only tell you about it like any trip. you got to go on it to really know what it means. Would you bow with me? Father, in the second part of our learning together about the experience Paul had with Corinth and the experience we have with our kids and our own rites of passage and our own willfulness, Father, I just pray for everyone in the room that we would have the heart to surrender to you our lives in such a way that as we do, we know that you're telling us, I want to call you out of things that are actually keeping you from growing, keeping you held back, keeping you in bondage, stunting your ability to just be who I called you to be. And I thank you, Father, that you open our eyes to see those things we don't want to see in ourselves. But as you do, Father, you do it out of deep love because you know there are better ways ahead. I pray for everyone in the room, if we need to have something revealed to us about our own character, that you would do that. If, they, if there is wisdom necessary for equipping young people, give us the understanding of how your process is working. And for young people who are just getting into that place where they're starting to find their own sea legs, Help them to lean on you every step of the way. Bless this series as we work through it together. Father, I pray that I haven't wasted anybody's time here, but the words I've said, if they're from you, that they would embed themselves in our hearts so that we can connect with you on a deeper level. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.